Hi, this is Joey Brandon. Welcome to the Axiom Podcast, episode 45. We're going to be talking about chapter 9 of the book that I wrote called Grow With Purpose. And this chapter is basically on strategy. What you don't do matters most. So we'll get into the chapter and I'll come back and we'll talk about it a little bit. Part 3, Growing With Purpose. Chapter 9, What You Don't Do Matters Most. I tell the business owners we work with the same thing all the time. What we do isn't rocket science, but it is a discipline. And the key discipline that enables company growth more than anything else is focus. Focus is not the opposite of distraction. It is the antidote to distraction. Without focus, you are sure to catch the disease of distraction. It is guaranteed. Strategy is just a fancy name for focus. When we decide to focus on a strategy, we are also saying that we will not be distracted by things that don't have anything to do with that strategy. The problem in almost every business is that over time, so many things compete for the leader's attention that no single area ever sees great progress. Business success is more often a marathon than a sprint. Businesses we admire have been around for decades. Certainly, there is time to narrow our focus for a few quarters on one or two specific areas so that we can make real progress. Larry is a great example of focus. He moved to Southwest Florida and eventually bought a real estate brokerage from one of my clients. Larry is a great example of focus. He moved to Southwest Florida and eventually bought a real estate brokerage from one of my clients. When Larry arrived on Anna Maria Island and started sitting in on real estate closings, he noticed something. Most of the closings were for vacation rental properties, and there were three parties at the table, the seller, the buyer, and the buyer's property manager. The real estate agents representing the buyer and the seller split about 6% of the sales price, but the property manager was a different story. The property manager's job was to list the vacation rental, take bookings from guests, and manage the vacation house throughout the year for the owner. And for that, the property manager would receive 17 to 20% of the annual rent income plus expenses every year. It didn't take long for Larry to figure out which seat he wanted at that table. So he started a vacation rentals business inside the real estate brokerage. In the beginning, Larry focused on one thing, marketing. He drove as much traffic to his website as he possibly could. He improved the number and quality of photographs that vacationers could view online. He outspent competitors on web advertising. He locked up high-quality domain names and redirected them to his site. He optimized content to drive organic search results, and the bookings came. Then Larry had another problem. Every property had to be cleaned and readied for new guests on Saturday morning. He was forced to manage a slew of independent cleaning companies. He dealt with inconsistent quality and the headache of managing multiple vendors, so he turned his focus to cleaning. It took a couple of years, but when he was done, Larry had hired his best cleaning subcontractor and made her his new star manager. All of those vendors were turned into employees, where Larry could control training and scheduling. Eventually, his team could turn over properties on Saturday faster than any competitor on the island. Then Larry had another problem. The cleaners had developed a system to increase efficiency. 
First, they would strip the linens and put them in the washing machine. Next, they would pull a fresh set of linens out of the closet and change all of the beds. Last, they would clean the rest of the vacation house. But every time, they were stuck waiting for the old linens to dry so that they could fold them and put them away before locking up the newly cleaned rental. Larry talked to other vacation rental companies around the country to see how they had solved the same problem. Over the next few years, he installed industrial washing and drying equipment, built a new building with a first floor dedicated to linens, and drastically cut the turnaround time for his cleaners. Now, they carried fresh linens to each property, stripped the beds, changed the linens, cleaned the house, and came back with dirty linens that could be washed before the next week's Saturday cleaning. The system was so successful that Larry's competitors started paying him to do their laundry as well. Larry recently sold the business to an international company. The buyer recognized the value he had built after 10 years of methodically focusing on one thing at a time. During those 10 years, he passed up real estate deals, enticing proposals from software vendors, management fads, potential acquisitions, distracting opportunities for side businesses, and geographic expansion. Instead, he dug deep. He focused on boring things like spreadsheets and best practices. Larry would stand back, look at all the possible strategies that could benefit his business, and then choose one. He didn't worry about whether it was the right one. This is the brilliant thing about focus. You don't have to pick the home run strategy to win the game. Focusing on one strategy means you consistently hit singles and doubles every day, and over time, you win. Focus allows your team to get behind you. There is nothing more demoralizing to a team than a leader who changes focus every six months. Eventually, these teams turn into a half-hearted effort because they all know that their hard work will soon be tossed out the door for a new, bright, shiny idea. A good strategy has the opposite effect. It gives your team a chance to work the problem or opportunity long enough to make a real difference. A good strategy clears the way by allowing everyone to say no to distractions that are not true priorities. A good strategy and the discipline to stick to it allows your company to make steady, consistent progress in one direction. It's not rocket science. What makes a good strategy? First, just remember that this is not a do-or-die situation. In small business, we are not putting all of our eggs in one basket and hoping for the best. When Larry decided to begin his focus with website marketing, there were a dozen things he could have focused on that would have improved the business, but he just picked one, and that is what made the difference. Just pick one. Good strategies have some common characteristics. A good strategy should take one to two years to fully play out. A good strategy is also measurable, and a good strategy engages the entire team. A good strategy should take one to two years to fully realize. When picking something to focus on, we want to make sure we can work on it long enough to make a difference. Stroke of the pen issues are not good strategies. If you know you need to raise prices, pull out your pen and raise prices. On the other hand, maybe you need to change the way you set prices. That could be a strategy. When Microsoft stopped selling shrink-wrapped software and started selling Office 365 as a subscription service, it was a major strategy that took several years to roll out. 
There may be issues or opportunities that need a few weeks of attention. If that's the case, delegate them to someone or mark out time on your calendar to get them done. Save your team for the big stuff. Strategies that will take about two years are ideal. A good strategy lends itself to measurement. Strategies do not have to be as well-defined or measurable as goals. When we think of goals, we think of statements that fit into an equation, like from X to Y by when. Strategies can be more nuanced. Think of them as guardrails that help us define concrete goals. They need not be directly measurable or time-bound, but they should lend themselves to measurement. Honesty is not a strategy. It might be a value, but it does not lend itself to measurement. Customer retention, however, does lend itself to measurement. We can measure how many customers continue to do business with us year after year and aim to improve that measurement. At the same time, it is not enough for a strategy just to lend itself to measurement. If that were the case, sales would be a legitimate strategy. But sales alone doesn't quite cut it. It is not specific enough to give the team focus. A better strategy might be build a professional sales force. We could measure things like best-in-class closing ratio or revenue per salesperson. We also might focus measurements on the recruiting and development of a certain number of salespeople by a certain date. If you want to focus the team's efforts in a specific direction, you need to have some way to know if they are making any progress. Picking a strategy that lends itself to measurement is the best way to do that. A good strategy engages the entire team. If we want to leverage the effort of the entire team for a sustained period of time, we need a strategy that they can all contribute to. At first, it might seem like the strategy to develop a professional sales force would involve only sales, but that would be short-sighted. Operations can narrow the choices of products and services by eliminating redundant items and scrubbing obsolete products from inventory. Accounting can contribute by simplifying the commission calculation and setting up a new real-time sales dashboard. Customer service can use feedback from lost and canceled accounts to improve products or prices that make us more competitive in the market. The warehouse team can publish a list of slow-moving items for sales contests and loss-leading discount promotions. Given the opportunity, most teams want to get involved, and they can be incredibly creative in figuring out how to contribute. Too often, the leader only discusses a sales strategy with the sales department. This robs strategy of all of its power and potential. The whole point of strategy is to get the entire team pulling in one direction. For this reason, it is imperative that everyone on the leadership team accept responsibility for making the strategy work. Grant was a sales manager for one of our clients. Grant's biggest problem was that he didn't see it as his responsibility to contribute to any team-wide strategy. There were always reasons that another department was in a better position to make the strategy work, and excuses about why his group couldn't have an impact. Brainstorming sessions became comical as Grant sat back and either didn't contribute or outright shot down suggestions about things his team could do to make a difference. It took a few years, but Grant was eventually asked to move out of the way. Your company cannot suffer leaders who won't accept responsibility for making strategy work. How to develop strategy. We started this book by talking about values, vision, why, and mission. All of those come from the leader. 
they are very much top-down. Strategy is different. The best strategies are the result of the best ideas, and the best ideas never come from a single person. They are developed within a group of top performers who challenge, inspire, refine, and prune ideas until only the best ones are left. For this reason, we develop strategy with the team after the leader has articulated values, vision, why, and mission. There are several ways to do this. One of the most common is to start with SWOT analysis. SWOT analysis stands for strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. When we do this with clients, we meet with the senior leadership team for anywhere from four to eight hours, and we start brainstorming. What are our strengths? What are our weaknesses? What opportunities exist outside our four walls? What threats are coming at us that we need to prepare for? We fill up whiteboards and flip charts. We eliminate redundancy and discern which items have data to back them up and which ones are purely anecdotal. When only the best ideas are left, we pick the top one or two and develop them into strategies. There is always only one primary strategy. Gap analysis is an alternative to SWOT. In gap analysis, the owners paint a picture of where the company should be three years from now in terms of revenue and profits. Then the team brainstorms what capabilities must exist three years from now for that picture to become reality. That list of capabilities is pruned and refined until the team is able to build a primary and a secondary strategy to get them to the three-year revenue and profit goals. Tips for developing good strategy. Use a facilitator. As the leader, you need to participate in developing strategy. That means you should not be leading the session. An outsider will avoid getting into the operational weeds and will keep things moving. A good facilitator will also keep any one person from dominating the session, especially you. Don't rush it. Taking 6 to 15 people out of the business for a day to develop strategy is hard. But if you are committed to doing it, do it right. My preference is to give them nothing else to worry about that day. If you must, give them two hours at the beginning or end of the day to take care of day-to-day business, but make the rest of the day sacred. Don't try to squeeze it into a regular staff meeting. The right people. Larger companies of 100 to 150 people can often have a dozen or more team leaders in a strategy session. Smaller companies may only have three or four. A good facilitator will leverage the size of the group to the greatest benefit. You need a good blend of operational expertise to get the best ideas on the board. Don't let big groups do the pruning. If your brainstorming group is bigger than six or seven, do the brainstorming in smaller groups. Then let those groups pick out the idea they like best and develop a strategy around it. Later, the core leadership team can further develop any of these strategies that show promise. Or they can go back to the brainstorming list, prune, and develop strategy from that. The larger the group, the harder it is to prune and refine, so don't waste a lot of time. Hand off the pruning and final development to a smaller leadership team. Executing strategy. Once you have your primary strategy nailed down and possibly a secondary strategy, set some goals for the year tied to the strategy. Just one or two goals are needed, and they should be in the format of from X to Y by when. Next, your leadership team needs to decide what their priorities will be for the next 90 days and how they will measure success for those priorities. Andy Grove, Intel's legendary CEO, built a very successful management system around this concept called objectives and key results. Here's an example. 
The primary strategy is retention. The one-year goal is to increase retention from 78% to 81% by December 31st. The sales manager's 90-day priority is to accurately measure cross-sales on a daily basis based on the premise that customers who buy more than one product or service from us will stick around longer. The sales manager's key results, get accounting to set up an automatic daily sales report email by January 31st. Audit salesperson self-reported numbers against accounting reports by the first week of February. If the self-reported numbers are accurate, add cross-sales to the sales whiteboard by February 15th. If the self-reported numbers are not accurate, work out discrepancies by February 28th. Begin reporting cross-sales at weekly leadership team meeting by March 7th. And present first 30-day cross-sales improvement report at the leadership team meeting by March 31st. The reason that key results are effective at executing strategy is that they provide a mechanism to hold team members accountable. But for this to work, it is imperative that team members check in with each other during a weekly group meeting to report progress on their priorities and key results. Accountability is best done in a team environment where team leads can help one another troubleshoot and overcome obstacles standing in their way. The secret sauce. In this chapter, I have tried to distill what others like Vern Harnish, John Doerr, and Michael Porter have written entire books about. Strategic planning and execution for small business is not easy, but I don't want you to make it more complicated than it is. The key to good strategic planning is to actually execute what you plan, even if you feel like that planning was pretty terrible. Over time, you'll get better at it. Plan, then execute, and keep executing. Resist the temptation to plan and execute in equal measure. Put together a plan for the year, and then just go at it. Put the blinders on. The worst thing that can happen is that you will learn valuable lessons that put you in an excellent position to plan and execute next year. The key to good execution is consistency. If you don't show up every week, your team will forget all about the strategic plan. They have plenty of other things to do. You must stay pig-headedly persistent during execution, and you do this by following up with each other every single week. Every 90 days, get your team leaders to set new priorities, then go back to holding them accountable every single week. Also, allow them to hold you accountable. Pig-headed persistence is the stuff of legends. Never underestimate a person who will stay with a task no matter what. The key to pig-headed persistence is love, and that is the subject of our next chapter. All right, so let's talk strategy. Strategy is one of those words that you kind of love it or you hate it, and I have a mixed relationship with it. Like in the one sense, I like strategy because it's the fun part of what we do. Developing strategy is kind of the whiteboard work. That's the work where you get to say, you know, where could we make the biggest difference? And there's a lot of thinking involved. There's a lot of planning involved. There's a lot of, in some sense, there's some data analysis involved to substantiate the strategy and measure progress against it. But at the same, at the same time, strategy is one of those words that you could probably go out and ask 10 people, what does strategy mean? You're going to get 10 different answers. What I find most often is that when people talk about strategy, they're really just talking about tactics. Or they will, here, here's probably the biggest differentiator between the way Axiom looks at strategy when we work with our small business clients and the way strategy is 
written about in small business books and uh, and like some of the CEO groups and stuff out there. They talk about strategy. When Axiom talks about strategy, we really would be better off if we just said focus. Because when we tackle strategy, we really believe, because, and, and it's not, we, we believe it because we've seen it, right? I want you to understand this belief is founded on the evidence with scores and scores of businesses that we have worked alongside. And you can only have one primary strategy. Now, we will have on our one-page plans that we develop with teams, we will often have two strategies, but one of those is always primary and the other secondary. And I'll give you a great example, a team that we met with yesterday, they've got two strategies. The first strategy is organizational development, like professional development, having a career track for every single person in this 200-plus person organization. And the other strategy is gross margin performance. And so those are the two areas that they've said, hey, this is what we really need to focus on. But last year, they focused almost exclusively on organizational development. Now, they did some things that that feed gross margin performance, primarily around pricing. And they, they put in place some great systems and processes over the years to measure closing ratio. And when they see their closing rates start to dip with their sales team and they, they look at the quality of the leads that are coming in and it doesn't seem like much has changed, it's just the closing ratio is down, they go back out to the market and they're constantly surveying the market to find out where the, where's the market pricing. So that they've done great work on their gross margin to, to position themselves with their brand and their reputation to be in the part of the market they want to be in. And then they manage their pricing to maintain that position. And so that part of gross margin performance, they, they've been doing that. The sales managers have been ta- paying a lot of attention to that over the last couple of years. But the group as a whole was really more focused on the organizational development piece last year. Well, they made great strides in that, fantastic strides in it. And they've still got some work to do. But before the next kind of page can be turned, before we can move on to the next chapter of that organizational development, they really need to let the processes they put in place last year uh, continue through this year, get a full cycle of, of the processes that they created and let those run their course. And then we can stand back and say, okay, like now we're ready to, for phase two. And so that's what we're doing this next year. In the meantime, the strategy that was secondary gross margin performance last year now has become the primary strategy. And so they know, and both of these are going to take three years, probably three to four years to really fully play out. But on the gross margin performance, that's the one that they've got in the crosshairs this year. And that's the one that we're starting to set goals around this year. So when we talk about strategy, we, we often hear other authors, we hear you know different planning paradigms. They'll talk about, well, you need a human resources strategy, and you need a marketing strategy, and you need a, a uh, IT strategy, and you need, you know, there's all these, there's like five or six different buckets of strategy that they say you should have. And to me, those are, those are kind of foundational elements uh, that have to be present in every business. They're not strategies in the sense that the team as a whole is taking a concerted effort to really focus on and improve this one particular area because it's going to offer us great strides in, in advancing toward our vision. That's kind of that's how we define strategy. So do we have a, an organizational or do we have an HR strategy? Well we kind of do, 
we for this business I was just talking about, we have this uh, professional development piece, which is kind of around HR. It has to do with people. But a lot of times when people say, do you have an HR strategy? What they're really talking about is like, do you have the systems and processes in place to consistently hire the people that you need and forecast when you're going to need those people? Well, that's systems and process. That's tactics. That's not strategy. When they say, do you have a sales strategy? They're usually talking about kind of the market position. Like, are you uh, are you at the top end of the market, the middle market, the lower end of the market where you're kind of high volume, low price? Uh, you know, what's your pricing strategy? Right? And that that's positioning. It's not really strategy in the sense that the entire company is focused in on this area. And that's what I think a lot of businesses are missing out on. I'm going to kind of go down a little bit of a rabbit trail here. Um, but, but I think it's important. What, what's the difference between the top performing businesses and the ones that are struggling? And, and when I say struggling, I don't necessarily mean struggling financial. Like the, the owner may have a brand new boat at the marina, right? So he's, the business is doing fine financially. But when you look at the business... There's turnover, there's frustration, the business owner feels like they always have to be there, they don't have any freedom from the business, um, th- there are these silos of, of um, you know, you got this department, this department, and they really don't hang out or work together very much, uh, you've got some rivalry, again, the turnover, there's not really a culture, there's some toxic people in the organization, you know, that just like, you're like, why are these people here, they don't seem like they want to be here. Life would be a lot better if they weren't here. What's the difference between those businesses and the businesses that are high-functioning and financially performing? And the difference is that in the businesses that are high-functioning, they they have leadership teams that are working together across departmental lines. They're focused on making the business better, like we're all here to make the business better. And that's one of kind of the hallmarks of what that's what we try to accomplish with the teams that we come in and work with is we try to take these usually they're they're like on a team of like six people, five of them are going to be highly qualified. There's always going to be like one. You're like, I don't know, this person really doesn't seem like they're at the level of some of the others. Right. But for the most part, 80 percent, 70, 80 percent of the team that leadership team, like the top managers in a, in a small business, the top five or six people in a, in a 30 or 40 or 50 person company, or the top six or seven people in a 100 or 200 person company, they're pretty high performers. And when we get there, they're performing, but they're performing in isolation. You got the, the sales department, like they're, they're getting the job done and they're driving sales, but they're bitching about production because... You know, they're always getting grief and doesn't seem like they, they see things from the customer's perspective. And we're out here in the trenches and we're trying to bring revenue in the door, but you guys just can't get it done. And production's going, man, our job would be so much easier if those salespeople would just fill out their paperwork. And you got IT or customer service that's, you know, often in their little world where they're, they really are, are receiving the brunt of whatever customer issues are coming up. And they're kind of jaded but they also have these great wins where they're able to rescue customers and, and get these great customer service stories. And that's shown up in Google reviews. And so they're proud of that. And you got the field people, the folks who are out there getting the work done, you know, and they're, you know, that's, that's its own culture. 
you know, they're, they just kind of got this can do like we're lots of camaraderie. We're all out here together. We're getting it done in the heat and the snow and the rain and the whatever. And nobody's really uh, crossing those those boundaries. It's very siloed. What we call siloed uh, kind of managerial ta- uh, managerial culture, I guess you'd say. And what we try to do is get that sales manager, that production manager, the field manager, the customer service manager, the controller, the accounting department, get them all in a room once a week and say, listen, take off your accounting hat, take off your sales hat, take off your production hat. I want you to put on your leader hat. And I want you to tell us what we need to be doing in this business to get better across all these lines. Because Mr. Sales Manager, you have a thing or two to say about production and the field, and IT, and customer service. And customer service, you have a thing or two to say about sales and how we're setting expectations with our customers and then how we're delivering on those in the field and also how we're handling issues when they come in through the phone lines. And accounting, like you have something to say about the commission rates and guys turning in their paperwork, but you also have something to say about customer service and how we can be a little bit more efficient or a little bit more attentive or deliver a better experience. And the, those top performers, like, what do they all have in common? One, they tend to be pretty responsible individuals. Two, they tend to be pretty bright, pretty smart folks. And three, they tend to care about a little bit more than themselves. They, they, they are leading others, and, and in some way, shape, or form, they're demonstrating some element of servant leadership. So you got smart people who are responsible and competent, and they have a desire to serve others. And what a lot of business owners do is they stick them in these little silos and we say, no, 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 I just want you to run sales. No, no I just want you to just do customer service. Uh, just do accounting. That's what I want you to do. And they may not explicitly say that, but if they're not creating opportunities and venues for those people to come together and work on the business as a whole in a structured framework and to focus on areas of the business where they can really have an impact, that's exactly what they're doing. If they're not proactively pursuing strategy in terms of focus and getting the leaders of the organization to, to go in deep and stay focused on a particular area of the business for an, a sustained period of time, if they're not doing that, then they are promoting this siloed management slash leadership culture. And that's what we're trying to eliminate. So strategy, when you're, you're like, everything, everything goes back to culture. Like we, t- we started the book with values, vision, why, mission, VVW. That's what we started the book with. That's all culture. That's all, that is about the, the mindset that we want the people who come in here to have. And then we start talking about leadership. We start talking about accountability. Start talking about roles. That's the people side of the business. The mindset has to come first. Then we add the people. And then on top of that, then come the processes. Then come the business processes and the systems and the pricing and the accounting system. All that stuff comes after so when we see high-functioning businesses, what we see is a business that has gotten the mindset down on paper so they know who should be on that leadership team, and then they have a leadership team coming in that says, you know, we all have something to say about how we can make this place better and how we can help one another do it. 
And strategy is just this great tool to leverage that. It's nothing but a tool in your toolbox. It's an excuse to get people to work alongside one another, shoulder to shoulder, so that the the group can accomplish something much bigger than any particular individual would be able to accomplish on their own. So in that sense, strategy is nothing but you know, an excuse to get people to work better together. But it's also a very effective tool in constraining focus. So when we talk about strategy, there's a primary and there's a secondary strategy sometimes. Sometimes it's just one strategy. But there shouldn't be like three or four. It's just too much. And when you set strategy, what you're really just doing, it's strategy for us, strategy is like a like like professional development is a strategy that some of our teams have focused on. Retention is a strategy. Uh, gross margin performance is a strategy. Uh, uh, implementing and fully utilizing tool sets is a strategy. So that, that was an interesting one. So I'll do, you go like, how the heck is that a strategy? This particular business's vision was to be uh, acquired or merged into a much larger uh, company. So they, they said, look, we could take the time to, to build this organically over years and years and years and years, but what's happening in our industry is that really uh, well-put-together small players are being gobbled up by larger players, and that's kind of what we want to do. We, we don't want to sell out. We want to stay involved. We want to be in the industry. None of us are ready to retire, but we'd really like somebody who's kind of already checked a lot of the boxes you know, in, in terms of what they've accomplished and knowing how to get you know, b- bigger uh, accounts on board and knowing how to build out a sales force. We want somebody who's already done that to essentially show us how to do it. So we're going to, we, we, our vision is to be acquired by one of these larger entities. Okay, that's your vision. What is the strategy that if we stayed focused on it for the next two to three years would have the biggest chance at getting us in, you know, uh, uh, moving us toward that vision. And so we, there was a lot of debate, you know, it's like, well, do we want to, do we, do we just need to drive sales because the, the smaller players with the highest sales are the ones that get looked at and then courted and potentially sucked up? Uh, is it, is, should we go out and hire somebody who's worked in one of these organizations before and put them in a leadership role because they've got the Rolodex and, and they can reach out to their network and it'll make a big difference having somebody inside our organization that's kind of known by the, the purchaser or the, the company that we're merging into. That was, that was another opportunity. Uh, is it, is it looking at where, uh, our customers are? And jettisoning some, jettisoning, I'm not even going to try again, uh, getting rid of some customers uh, in, in like one area, one niche, one industry, and picking up, the, uh, replacing those with customers from another particular industry because these kind of companies get acquired based on you know, what their clientele looks like. Like So there are all these possibilities, but here was the, the one that finally won the day, the thing, the one that... Um, that made the most sense to this group. You know, a lot of this, you're, you're trying to use data, you're trying to use, um, you know, resources and poll people, and, and you're trying to get the best ideas on the table, but there's no guarantees. You know, so at the end of the day, this team, this leadership team decided that their best chance would probably come, uh, the best chance of being acquired would probably come if they were using the exact same systems and tools that the acquiring company was using. 
under the theory that these are IT companies. They want everything to be seamless. They've gone through a lot of, of deliberation to choose their tools. They think their tools are best. And if you're using the same tools that they're using, that's going to, you know, that's going to resonate with them. So like, oh, you guys are using the same, you, you must think the same way we do. That's one element of it. But the other element is that integrating that business into the, the larger business is much easier because the databases are exactly the same. It's just a you know import export import type function. So they went out to the market. So they said, okay, so uh, integrating systems and, and tools is is our biggest strategy, and that's going to take a few years because you know we've got a hodgepodge of different systems and tools, ticketing systems, accounting systems, all this stuff. And so they went out and they they surveyed the market for all these different vendors for ticketing systems and CRM systems and all this stuff. And they found out which ones were being used, are most likely to be used by the companies who are in a position to buy them. And they went all in on one specific tool. It was becoming very popular in the IT company. But this was a tool that was much more expensive uh, than anything else they were looking at, and it was much more likely to be used by a company that was two, three, four, up to ten times their size. So it was really it was kind of overkill on the tools front. But they decided to pursue that. They did it. They executed over the course of about three or four years, and lo and behold, year five, along comes a company and says, "Hey, we would like we want a footprint in Florida. Uh, we like you guys." Uh, this looks like it'd be, you know, as long as we can kind of sync up on the cultural level and there's some personal chemistry between this ownership group and that ownership group, this should be pretty easy. And, and it happened. So strategy is, like I said, it's, a, it's an area of sustained focus. Uh, there can only really be one for you to really make progress on it. And you ought to be able to set goals around it. So, you know, like one of the goals for that and particular group was, you know, for one year was to get the new system in place and all the customers rolled over onto it. The next year it was to implement, you know, this module, this module, and this module, because there's, you know, like the base module, but they really wanted to fully utilize all the tools. And then the next year was to kind of sunset all of the aging tools and the legacy tools. And if it meant getting rid of customers who couldn't be moved off of those tools, then we we're going to have to do that. And so every year, in addition to like revenue targets, which you know we are we're always going to set revenue targets and budgets, but in addition to that, we were setting these operational goals to have you know these milestones covered over the course of the year. And every ninety days, we'd say, "What is the what's the sprint look like for the next ninety days to get us closer to this goal of having this piece, particular software package you know fully implemented, or to, to rolling these customers out who are on the legacy tool sets." and offboarding those to somebody else. Well, what does the 90-day sprint look like to, to move toward that if that's our goal for the end of the year? And when you get the group around the table and you have sales talking about this, accounting talking about this, production, uh, field personnel, service, it actually happens. And you don't have one person going back to their office with this mountain of, you know, of a task on their plate to implement a software system and no buy-in from anybody else in the organization. So I'll give you another example. And, uh, and this one comes out of our experience yesterday with a team where they're shifting from this professional development goal over to a gross margin focus goal. And gross margin, you know, it's, it's 
we kind of we talked about it in the last chapter, but it's basically you got to make sure your pricing is right so that your revenue is coming in the door at the right price, and you got to manage your direct materials and your direct labor. Well, I've done a lot of work on the pricing. I feel like that's in hand. Sales managers kind of got that in hand. So we're turning our focus this year to getting um, getting direct labor and direct material cost uh, accurately allocated to every single job that goes to the organization. Thousands of jobs a year. Every single one of them has to, and it's very complex. Every single one of them has to have all of the direct costs, all of the direct materials, all of the direct labor allocated to that particular job. And the first element of that is so that's our goal. Our goal is that you know we can get there. Not sure how long it's going to take. I mean, it could take a year. Even if we get, I think we're going to get like one division done this year, and then we'll have to kind of tackle the next division the following year. So it's it's probably a two to three year play to get this fully vetted out. But the very first piece of that looks like an inventory control system. So we have to have an inventory control system in place. That's kind of the biggest push for this year. And that system, you know, once the rudiments of it are in place, then we'll start trying to figure out, okay, how do we more efficiently allocate uh, direct labor to jobs, you know, as we kind of work out the kinks in the inventory system. But the inventory system's huge. Well, how does that, you go, well, that's accounting's job. How does anybody else play into that? So at the table yesterday, we had uh, like a director of field personnel. We had a production, the, the head of production. Um, we had accounting. We had sales. We had general management, and we had ownership. Those were the six or seven people who were around the table. Now, one of the issues is that field personnel have credit cards, like crew supervisors and folks out in the field have credit cards, and they're not always good about getting those credit cards back to or those credit card receipts back to accounting with job numbers on them so that they can be allocated to jobs. So, hey, Mr. Field Supervisor, you need to get on this. Also, when your crews are, are coming back with materials that aren't used, we need a process for that because that material has been allocated to that job. Now it's coming back. It's going on a warehouse shelf. We need a, a process for getting it back on the warehouse shelf. That's yours. Uh, Mr. Sales Manager, uh, when, when your sales guys are giving proposals, uh, they're kind of estimating their, their bill of materials. We need a much more accurate bill of materials. And there's going to have to be some training the, the way that your guys are quoting jobs, the units that they're using need to be translated into the units that we're actually purchasing, which is it's a longer conversation I want to get into. But there's a lot of training that's going to have to happen. Not a huge hurdle, but there's going to be the training, and then you have to hold them accountable to it. And so, Mr. Sales Manager, that's your responsibility. Production. Uh, when we're looking at how these estimates are built, we really need a better formula in the estimating software for how materials are are applied how much material it's going to take to do a certain size job we need you to work on that and around it went every single person has a part to play in this strategy now sometimes we really scratch our heads and we're like what is this person going to do if we're doing that we got the wrong person at the table right and that sounds harsh 
But if I'm scratching my head, <clears throat> and I'm, excuse me, <clears throat> if I'm scratching my head and I'm looking at John, call him John, nobody around the table that day was named John, so that's a safe one. But I'm looking at John, and I'm going, John, where do you factor into this strategy? Let me think, let me think, let me think, let me think. John shouldn't be at the table. It's not my job as the facilitator or the business owner or whomever. It's not my job to figure out what John's role is in that strategy. It's John's job. And if John doesn't want to figure out how he can play a part in making the business better, John shouldn't be at the table. And that's, that may sound harsh, but it's the truth. The highest functioning leadership teams have Johns who are saying, hey, I got an idea. Um, I'm, I'm going to take some time this week. I'm going to try this out. I'm going to come back next week. I think it's going to make a difference. The dysfunctional companies have Johns that are sitting there with their arms folded, checking their text messages or their emails, wondering when the hell they're going to get out of this stupid, pointless meeting and be able to get back and get the work on their desk done because it's all about the work that they have to get done because they want to take vacation next week or they don't want to have to work late tonight or they don't want to have to, you know, it's a big inconvenience to go back and wade through all the email that piled up while they were in this pointless meeting. So again, what do we go back to? Why is John at the table? John's at the table because we let somebody in the organization who didn't share the same mindset that we did. He wasn't on board with our values. He doesn't buy into our vision. He doesn't resonate with our why. And he probably has never even taken a, a, a second look at our mission statement. And we let this joker in the leadership team where he's got wide influence, where he's got the ability to basically sink or torpedo the efforts of people who are working their asses off and giving their hearts and souls to the organization to try to make it better so that it can accomplish its mission. And we've let this guy come in and suck all the air out of the room. So if you struggle with strategy, if you struggle with strategy in the sense that either uh, you struggle as the owner to constrain your focus, well, that's a discipline issue. Like you can't chase every rainbow. You can't get distracted by every squirrel that crosses your path. You owe it to your people to come up with a vision and then take chunks out of it every two to three years in, in the form of strategy to say we're going to focus on this particular area for two to three years so that we can progress toward that vision. You owe that to your team as a leader. You also owe your team the, the discipline slash accountability to make sure that they're sitting and standing alongside people who are like-minded. If you're dysfunctional, it could be because you won't commit to a vision and you get distracted by everything. But it could also be that if you're, that you're, dysfun if you're dysfunctional, it's because you haven't held people accountable to your values. The values haven't been the standard for who gets on the bus or who's allowed on the bus. You haven't put people in positions of authority who resonate with your why, who see the world the way you do, who want to accomplish the things you want to accomplish for the reasons that you want to accomplish them. So if you struggle with this, if you look at your company, it's like, it's not what I want, it's not what I... 
that my biggest encouragement would, to you would be like, look, it's not about finding the next strategy. The strategy will help, but it's just a tool to give you the excuse to get people to work alongside each other and serve one another in service of a worthy vision, consistent with values that are non-negotiable. So if you're frustrated, I'd say go back to your values first and then go back to your vision because the problem is probably there. That's it for this week. Next week, we're going to finish this book. Like It feels like I've been going through this thing forever. We're going to finish this book. We're going to go through chapter 10. Chapter 10, a little controversial. Some people look at me kind of crazy when they read the title. Um, Some people look at me crazy when they read the last page. But we're going to get into it next week. Hope to see you back here. 